Welcome to another episode of Behind the Brand, where we dive deep into the minds of Canadian innovators and trailblazers. Today, we have the pleasure of introducing you to a creative powerhouse, Kirsten Gauthier, the co-founder of the dynamic creative agency, Public Office. Kirsten's entrepreneurial journey is nothing short of remarkable, as she's forged a path of creativity and innovation. From her early days founding her very first print company, The Production Kitchen, to holding pivotal roles as the Chief Marketing Officer and Chief Growth Officer at 48 North, to driving impactful change with Goodfoot, a delivery service giving meaningful employment to neurodiverse community. Kirsten's accolades include prestigious awards like the CLIO and the Canadian Marketing Awards, a testament to her innovative approach to business. Today, she offers us a fresh perspective on entrepreneurship, creativity, and industry trends, sharing invaluable insights into branding, marketing, and entrepreneurship. So Kirsten, let's let's go back to the beginning. Walk us through the, the kind of early stages of your career. How did you get started in your career? I graduated. I knew I wanted to stay in Toronto. Uh, I was an art student. I went to the bilingual campus of York University, which was Glendon College. It was the 90s. It was the recessions where one on top of the other. I didn't end up talking to my girlfriend and said, I just, you know, I really need a job. And she was working in advertising. And she said, well, I know a company that's looking for um, a production manager. And so I said, well, I don't know anything about advertising or production. And she, she said, well, you know what, um, you should just meet them. So I did. And I was hired based on my personality and that I had done some theater production. Then I was sort of off to the races. That was basically my first foray into understanding like the how everything sort of works from communications to marketing to how to create art to a whole creative industry. At that time, it was like before desktop publishing really got got its purchase. It was just beginning out and there was a lot of making and and tactile parts of that industry that I really loved, whether it was, you know, having to make mock-ups or having to create, um, like, for example, we had to make banners that were hand-painted by artists. So you're procuring artists instead of, like, printing out digital prints on from some computer graphic. Anyway, so I just got a real appreciation for the art and the craft of creating. And then from there, I just kind of got into creating a production company called Production Kitchen that I had started by buying sort of the remnants of a print brokerage of a supplier that I had been working with. And I completely reinvented it because at that time, everything was moving more to digital. The possibilities were endless in terms of like what you could make. And there was a real disconnect between what people's ideas were and how to get it done. And the model was being reinvented as it always seems to try to be um, at that time. And creative strategy um, companies were splintering off from big multinationals. And so they would just be sort of selling the brain work. How long did you work for someone before you decided, hey, I'm going to kind of buy this kind of patchwork production company, uh, you know, from your supplier and then kind of call it your own? Like, like maybe walk me through that decision because I always find that that's sometimes the hardest part is, you know, do you know enough? Like, how do you know you're ready? How, how did you go through that that thought process? That's a good question. So I, I worked in advertising for 18 months before I quit. I hated it. <laughs> and then I went away to England and lived there for a little while, just doing working retail. And then I came back and I ended up working for the, them again, like the, the, not again, working for the broker for about a year. 
And the woman that I was working with, she had left the company and it was just her father-in-law left and he wanted to retire. So literally it was a year. But during that time, you know, I was doing everything. I was talking to the suppliers. I was talking to the clients. Like I learned the whole business because what both of them were really kind of on their way out for, you know, different reasons. But I, I got to, to learn how to run the business. So it didn't take very long. It was terrifying. Like uh, I was given the opportunity and I didn't, I didn't know how to read a balance sheet. I was an art student. Like When you say given the opportunity, what do you mean by that though? I mean, I know, no one's like walking around handing away companies here. So how did you get given the opportunity? Because I, I, I imagine there's more to it than that. Well, the, the owner was an aging man. He wanted to retire and he had a book of business that he felt was valuable and he had no one to buy it. <laughs> okay. And so he, he had already shopped it around and you were essentially the buyer of last resort for this business? I think so. Wow. And so why then, didn't that scare you at all? Like, wouldn't you be like, okay, there's probably a reason why no one wants to buy this. And if they didn't, and a lot of these people probably know a thing or two about running these types of companies, how did that not talk you out of it? I think you are thinking this is more sophisticated. This is a, this is a man who worked in adhesives for paper. He had a great, nice lifestyle business. I mean, and he'd had his daughter-in-law basically running the business and she, he, he was making money off of her. And then when she was like, I'm out, I was the one left running it. And I knew, I knew how the business worked. Yeah. I, I had, you know what? I had the energy to take it on and turn it into something else. I was not taking it to do what it is. You know what, Kristen? I think you're, you're hitting on something I think that is really overlooked in people when they think about their careers too, because everyone's trying to get the job at the big firm or, you know, like the brand. It's almost like a, you're, you're almost label shopping for it. It's like, oh, who, who did you work? You, oh, you got BCG over there. Oh, you're McKinsey. Oh, okay. You're Deloitte or you're working for this big bank or this big oil company. And no one's talking about the little production company that smelled like glue that was had a daughter-in-law working there that forced you to kind of learn literally everything in 18 months to the point where you were confident enough to buy the company or at least take over the company like that. How many people who work at a large organization are going to learn enough while they're there in 18 months to, to run any company, let alone like, you know, even if it's a one person shop, two person shop, like they're just not going to know enough. I think that's super insightful, especially coming off the backs of the article I read today about how we have fewer entrepreneurs in Canada than we've ha ever had. Oh my God. And, and the amount of boomers that are like are just getting out of their businesses and people aren't picking them up because people are more comfortable in the labor market and hybrid working and it's just more comfortable. To your point, there's more opportunity than ever to go out and find a business for sale. I didn't do very well in school. I was I was really like about taking every opportunity and swinging from one branch to the other. I, I kind of knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't even know what entrepreneur was. I just wanted to have my own company. As I got older and my business got bigger and I was dealing with bigger problems, I have wished that I had had the experience of working in a larger company or I had at least done some kind of Oh, I struggled with the MBA thing. It's like, maybe I should get my MBA or like, I'm, I, I don't have the confidence to walk into that room because I don't have my MBA for a very, very long time until I had enough successes under my belt that I felt like I don't need my MBA. But now at where I am now in my life, it's like, wow, maybe if I'd done my MBA, I would have had a shortcut to some of the experiences I had later in life. Maybe you never would have done them. Maybe you would have gone work for, you know, one of the larger agencies. 
maybe I wouldn't have done it. Like there's a lot of power in putting those blinders on and not knowing what you don't know and totally. just doing what you feel. In the early days of Skip, it looked like we were potentially going to sell the company and we were pretty stoked because we had someone who's going to pay us 200 grand for it. And so I remember sitting down and talking to my partner and saying, how likely do you think this deal is going to go through? And he thought about it for a second, very smart guy. And he said like 98%. And then, so basically then I went out and bought the GMAT study guide because I was like, because <laughs> we're only a year or two into this company and, it, and the whole purpose I wanted to start a company was to learn about business because I didn't, I didn't have a, I don't have a bachelor's of, of commerce or any business ed- education. I was literally studying for my GMAT and then sure enough, the deal fell through and <laughs> thank goodness it did <laughs> because we ended up four years later selling the company of 200 million. So it's like, I, I was choosing between starting co-founding Skip with, with my college friends and doing an MBA. Like that was literally the, the, the binary decision. Uh, and I ultimately decided to do the startup route because I was like, this sounds like a lot more fun. And I figured I'd kind of learn it on the fly. So do you feel right now with this, the new business, it, same problems or same challenges? Do you feel like you wish you got your MBA now or something? Oh, if, I mean, if I had the two years of free time, I still don't know if I would, to be honest. I mean, and then I have nothing against, we have lots of folks that have MBAs here. So there's brilliant folks that have, have MBAs that don't have MBAs. So it's certainly not a requirement for, for anyone. And, and, and so they also have that, like, I don't know, the confirmation bias where like smart people tend to go and get MBAs. They don't, they're not smart because they have one, if you know what I mean. So it's like same thing with like, I have a few friends that went to really good schools in, in the US and and they're like, Stanford isn't any harder than a Canadian school. It's harder to get into though. And so because of the selection bias, they only let in like the most ambitious people who are all highly driven and motivated and have kind of like a lot of their life mapped out. And, you know, they're there on a, for a purpose. Whereas I think a lot of schools like in Canada, I think it, you, you can get in fairly easily. And so it's a little bit, you know, it's not as competitive as it would be in the U.S. So, so the problems aren't, they're not repeating themselves, but they're, they, they rhyme. Do you know what I mean? Like there's some that are very similar, but they're not identical. Uh, and we're also in a heavily regulated business this time, whereas like food delivery, certainly at least at the time was definitely not. And, and obviously banking is for good reason. How, like, what about, what about you? Like if you're in the agency business, like what is it like starting up an agency? I imagine like, how do you stand out? Like, how do you get clients when I feel like there's all these giant global agencies that people, it's like IBM, like companies hire IBM because no one wants to get fired. You're not going to get fired hiring IBM. So then how do you go and stand out in in your business? There are lots of different companies out there that need help. I mean, are you going to chase the elephant? Like, look, I was always build it one step at a time, your work will speak for itself and you'll attract other bigger fish. And that's basically what has happened. You know, um, like with public office right now, we started it really into 2017. I mean, I had started it in 2009 as sort of like an offshoot of the two other businesses that I was running as a creative outlet. And so that we could, you know, connect with the community. And it was like a print shop design shop so that people could walk in. And was that the production kitchen still or 48 North? That was production kitchen. And uh, I had a design company called The Inn at the time. Then we, I opened the uh, public office downstairs. Because I, I really it, I really believe that local, small, 
um, street, like regular people inform big companies as big companies are informing consumers. So like having that connection and being able to design things and make things and interact with the, the arts community on a different level was like, it was a very fertile time, I think, in my career. But to answer your question, I've been thinking a lot about this right now because the industry is really, it's going through a change and the big agencies are getting bigger. They're acquiring the little guys are really, really struggling. Bigger companies usually in the past were really open to using several types of partners, which I always thought was the best w the way to get your the best out of all your partners, like the hub and spoke model. And really what I, I really learned about that model in a great way was when Virgin came to Canada. And I actually worked with Peter Furnish. Great guy. And, and the way that they approached it was much like the way they approached their other creative partners, you know, in the UK. So, you know, as you know, it's like, you have specific right people working on the right parts of your business to get the best out of it. Well, now it feels like that's, you know, going into the monolith again because these agencies are slashing their prices and really, you know, attracting attracting big clients again. I don't believe in that. I think specialization is really important. Do do what you're really, really good at. Um, be really well known for it. And then uh, they will start giving you other things to do because they know that they can depend on you. So you try to get a, a bit of a foot in the door, essentially. And then, and so it's kind of like, I don't want to say you don't take any work just to get the foot in the door, but how picky can you be if you're just trying to get a wedge into that, into that client? I don't think you can be, but you have to really have a point of difference. So like, look, I grew up in the production world. I know how to make things. I know how to create so I would say that pu public office is a creative services company. So we can plug into your marketing department and help you expand your brand across a lots of different platforms and keep it consistent and give you other ideas and, you know, and introduce other things into the mix if you want to amplify, right? Or, you know, some clients just hire us and say, we have an agency and they're going to do the strategy and they're going to do the high-end creation and you guys, can you just get it done? They'll hire you to manage another agency? No, no. We would manage all of the execution that that agency does. And then it's good for the client because they can have a better handle on the costs of it all. It's an interesting time right now because I, I mean, I've mean, i gone through the cycle a few times where it was like big company, big ad agencies all breaking off and fracturing. And then you have companies like Bella were like, we're going to we're gonna do our creative strategy with this tiny little company like Alpha Zulu Kilo or Kilo Alpha. I always screw up the name. They were just a startup and Bell threw their business there, gave them creative strategy. Now they, they've had them since the rebrand. Really? Forever. Bell rebranded? Well, Bell, before the B, yeah, exactly. Before the B, that was a long, long time ago. Even when I see the big five will, you know, do a rebrand and I'm like, I think they changed the angle. It's almost like you have to kind of like stare at it for a while and then you're like, yeah, maybe it's tilted a little bit now. It's like- What about the CIBC? I don't know who proved that. I mean, did they do Rogers too? Like, I can't, I can't believe even that got through. Yeah, so, yeah, wasn't it like they? I remember looking at it, and then someone like flashed them next to each other, and I was like, "Oops!" And I'm pretty sure, like, if you're if you're in downtown Toronto and you're like working in one of the CIBC towers, you can probably see the Rogers Tower. <laughs> probably. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think is doing a really, really good job right now on the creative side? When you think of mainstream brands, Canadian brands, who's crushing it? Is that hard for you to answer? Is that? Yeah, because I'm thinking about all the categories. And also, you know, I'm fed a lot of noise. 
So it's like, oh, Subway, this is a really cool, they've done something cool. Like you get, you're getting fed who's doing cool things, but I have to really think about like what, what's really resonating with that. You know what, who's resonating with me is Sobeys. Okay. I think Voila is beautifully executed. Yeah. I think that the new store design is really great. Voila, though, I do agree with you. Voila, they've invested big on that one because they're, they hired a Cotto to do the, a lot of the distribution centers. Uh, which is like a super, super uh, large capital expenditure, highly automated and robotic. A lot of the logistics I think they own as well. So they're not like hiring Instacart to do it. And then again, yeah, they built a brand behind it and voila works, I think, well in French and English too. What do you think Canadians are doing wrong when it comes to, to brand and creative, like Canadian brands in general? Are there common themes across Canadian businesses? Like are we taking more risks than our American counterpart? Less? What do you, What do you see? we got a couple really cool companies, you know, like Ritzia, just killing it, I think. Totally. But we have a lot of international, multinational companies here, like, and it's just, it, it's adopt, adapt, and and distribute. I think they try to localize as much as they can. But in the end, as a consumer, like, aren't you buying that because you just want to be part of that global brand? Like, do you want it to be local? I don't know. I think we probably need to be better at creating our own things and celebrating them better. Yeah. One of the things I always say to people is, you know, we're a huge importer of companies and like all the brands, there's really 11, 12 companies that run Canada, five banks, three telecoms and three grocery companies and then then throw in Walmart and Amazon. But it's not like you're really spicing it up all that much with those. Like most of those companies have been around for like a hundred years. Most of those companies are not going to be on the cutting edge because they just can't. Like they, the downside is too high, and they're like, okay, well, we can just kind of continue doing what we're doing with a little bit of change around the edges, and then we'll grow two to three percent. And because we're so big, two to three percent is like billions and billions of dollars. Shareholders will be happy, so let's just keep doing that. And I think that's kind of like what the past has been like. That looks like what the future is going to be, unless we actually start new companies that are actually doing things a little bit differently that can reach scale. And that's part of the reason why I think entrepreneurship is so important because otherwise it's going to, Canada is just going to be like this forever. And I think a lot of people want to see it better than it is right now. I mean, I, mean, I worked in, in the cannabis industry and we raised capital, but I mean, you would know, like it's it's not easy to raise capital. Also, when you have so, so few companies that are really controlling a lot of these industries, like it's easy to get squashed, you know, with different things like price fixing and them seeing an opportunity that maybe they're missing that they can actually get to market faster and throw more money at it. There's not a lot of noise to get lost in here. Like, it, yeah. like we're we're all in a bit of an echo chamber because this 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 country's pretty small. But yeah, it would be great to see some some new things. I mean, I, I recently I, for some reason I'm concentrating on groceries probably because like basically that's what I've done for the past five years is go to the grocery store. But like Longos, like I was just so sad to hear that they sold. But maybe that goes to the point where people don't want to take on the responsibility. Like it's a lot of work. Like well, it's a big company, right? Well, it's also we don't have as many, like if if we all grew up with the Sobeys family or what's the family that owns Loblaws? Weston. The Westons. Like imagine if you grew up with, and there was a hundred different versions of the Westons and the, the Sobeys families and the Irving Oils and, you know, the Rogers and, you know, and imagine if they, those people were fairly commonplace and you saw people take risks and they got rewarded and 
their lives were changed and the whole community around them was changed. And if you had like exposure to that and you saw that, I think more people, more Canadians would be willing to take the risk. That's why I became an entrepreneur because I was around people that were. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, this person controls their time. They get to build things that have a an impact on people that is mostly positive, but also in a way that they think is the right way to do it. They control that and they get to take care of the people around them. The challenge though, I think, Kirsten, is that we have such a center of gravity to the south of us. And we have so many people who are like, why would I bother doing it here when I could just go down south and I get access to a 10 times larger market, a culture that promotes risk-taking and embraces failure. Whereas in Canada, you're like, it's a 10th of the market. No one's going to believe you. And if you fail, you're going to be branded a failure forever. You know what I mean? Okay. But okay. This is the the, the, the boy from Saskatoon. I mean, did you do it because you wanted to make a trillion dollars or did you do it because you wanted to learn something and you wanted to learn something about yourself? I mean, I think there are different, re- different reasons why different people do different things. I mean, so you're that kind of entrepreneur and you sound to me like you wanted to invest your time and in, in your effort in your own country or your own backyard. I mean, and I, I grew up traveling and representing Canada as an athlete. And so it was like, that was what drove me my whole life was this opportunity to kind of represent my country. And to me, like, that was such a privilege to be able to do that. And so I, I, it's kind of like ingrained in my DNA, this, this Canadian identity and this, this trying to like show the world that Canada can do pretty cool stuff. There's not as many people who have who've had the same opportunity that I've had to, and have had that kind of ingrained into, into them. But I do feel like Canada would be better off if we did have people who did kind of stick around and and start companies. But we got to see a culture change, I think, in order for people to do what you're doing. And and you're doing it in a very difficult industry because like people tell me like the creative industry is one of the hardest. It's so fickle. What what do you think that people get wrong about creative? types of people. Like I, I've heard people say like, hey, finding really, really good creative talent is very, very difficult. They talk about it with the same level of difficulty as finding good engineers. Why is that the case? Is it, or, or is that a false assumption? No, it's not a false assumption. I mean, if you think about what you're doing, you're hiring somebody who is creating something that's got to resonate on a, a mind level to the target group within a brief receive feedback, criticism, and do it very, very quickly. I mean, you that person has got to be highly intuitive, an excellent editor, someone who is wi- wildly, widely read and visually of the moment, can manage their emotions and work with people who are not creative, who are bound to deadlines and getting, you know, delivering and all this stuff. So yeah, a lot of people lose their mind. They can't handle it. Keep that person away from me. And that's what a lot of these create, create like a creative team does. So you have different people who are the buffers that give people the space to be able to create. Very rarely do you meet someone who's actually emotionally intelligent enough and financially intelligent enough to appreciate all the angles of what it takes to be able to make something. And those people end up rising to the top. It's about ROI. It's about the customer. It's about the it's about the possibility of the brand. It's it's not about the art project yeah. on the computer. How, how do you attract top creative talent to public office? I'm an incredible creative director. 
both my partners I met while I worked at Jackman Reinvents, which is the company that I sold both my com- other companies to. And that was an amazing breeding ground because the speed at which we worked for, we did massive transformations of brands that were globally so global. So they were, you know, not only business design, but analytics, management consulting. Yeah, strategy. Everything. Yeah. So they just knew uh, how to distill and create and deliver. Kayla, who is my creative director, she's a nurturer. And she, like I said, she gets all parts of it. She's an excellent designer and creator, but she also just hires better people. She's at a stage now where it's like she's better at knowing what the client needs and how to solve the business solution and how to get that out of a creative person in the right way. Mm. And that's what you need. You almost need a translator. And then once they feel like you've created a safe environment for them, they all come. Like they come. Mm. She has a reputation now. Like people know know of her and they're like, listen, if I want to do some good work, not deal with all the BS of some other place and have some person who doesn't get it, they're going to go to work with her. And I think like a lot of really creative people don't want to work at big agencies. It's just counterintuitive to like the type of people they are. They're counterculture people, like they're creative people. Well, and also not going to be able to be super creative at a company that doesn't want to take any risk at all. And most big companies, again, back to the discussion earlier is like, what's the point? What are the big trends that you're seeing? Like, And I don't even know if this creative have a trend or is it always kind of going in every direction all the time? Yeah, it's got a ton of tentacles for sure. I mean, you can see trends and then you know like it's over. Are there any macro that are like, well, what's the next big thing? Like digital came, again, that's more advertising, I guess, but like, I get in graphic design, but that's been around forever. Like what are the the massive transformational industry creating trends that you see on the horizon? Well, what's what I'm noticing the most right now is this pullback from from digital. We've been so into it for so long and there's a real thirst for the make, making and the touching and the feeling. And even the experiential is like, because we had the Instagram moments before the pandemic and people were building those little like, you know, experiential whatevers. I look at something like the sphere in Vegas right now is just completely blowing my mind and saying that's where digital belongs in experiential kind of way, married with something that's live and real, um, way more powerful than anything I think any of us have ever really seen. So that that will be interesting, I think, how that manifests itself and as it as it becomes more and more accessible to more and more people to use those types of like tools to create something. But in terms of other macro, like we're just trying to search for connection at this point and get people out. And it, it's just the sea of same. People don't know how to make anything anymore. People aren't going to work. People are still on their phones. So I think actually the tactile thing of print coming back and people coveting things, holding things, bespoke things, all those those things are going to be important to brand building, whereas we relied too heavily on digital. Yeah, we had uh, Laura Maines on the podcast. She's so smart. Yeah, she, yeah, she's awesome. And yeah, so she worked at Jack. And I was wondering if you guys crossed paths there. And we were talking about the metaverse because at, at the time, I think she was at Cadillac Fairview. And obviously, they're a massive real estate uh, company. I feel like I have not heard anyone talk about metaverse in a very long time now. And I'm not exactly disappointed, but do you, they, do you, can we put it to bed now or is it is it coming back? I mean, if you're asking me, put it to bed. I mean, the last thing we all need to do is live more online. You know what I mean? <laughs> what were you thinking when we were going through the whole thing of like, there, there was people who were spending like 10 grand on virtual restaurants. 
Well, it, you know, it all happened before. It happened. Um, it happened in two thousand and four or five. Canada Post was promoting an online world where they had Canada Post offices and different brands. I forget what it was called. One Life, Real Life, something like that. So it, it had happened before. Obviously, our computers were not fast enough, and whatever wasn't sophisticated. But the thing is, is that. I don't know, just it, it just didn't take. So uh, when they said it again, it was just like, oh, no, no, a new bunch of people are going to try to do it again. And I don't know, maybe after the apocalypse, it, the metaverse is where we should be. Hopefully we can all just get outside. I was mentioning earlier that, you know, we don't, you know, in the U.S., like we don't look at people and identify them as a failure. We don't define someone by their failures, but failures obviously have an impact huge impact on your development, but you've started multiple companies, you've run multiple companies simultaneously. What were some of the defining failures that you feel really put you on the path that you're on now and really gave you important lessons that maybe you needed to have and that you now still kind of benefit from? Okay. So um, failures. Yeah. I don't really like that word. I think now I can say they were like necessary, but at the time they do feel like crap. Yeah. There's lots of things that I did wrong. I mean, from going into partnership too quickly with somebody that I probably shouldn't have gone into partnership and having to get out of that, actually by having to get out of that propelled me into selling two of my companies to Jackman, which was probably the best thing for my career, for, for my mental development, right? You know, I think working working a lot and being an entrepreneur, raising a family with a, other, with a partner who is an entrepreneur is took a large toll on, on our marriage. And I think that, you know, I think the drive and even just like the healthy competition, I think between you, I think can kind of muddy things. So I guess I didn't maybe pay enough attention to the impact of what all that, because you're moving so fast and, you know, you're raising kids and, it, you know, I think maybe that, that was, that was something that I, I don't know. I can't tell you what uh, the good thing is out of it, other than, you know, I'm probably a lot smarter and felt more thoughtful. Because of those experiences, you, you, you've you become more thoughtful now? Yeah. You know what? I don't know about you, but uh, after selling your business so quickly, after four years, you probably felt like this was too easy. This is easy. I can do this. Like, why can't anyone else? Like, you, you know, you think you... You take a lot for granted when it everything happens too fast. Yeah, there's cer certainly a risk of that for sure. Like you, it is an interesting kind of, there is danger in that, I think. But I think that, yeah, one of the things I've learned at least is that it's it's definitely not for everyone. And that's not a bad thing either. Like there's, entrepreneurship has this like romanticism around it. Like entrepreneurs are somehow special or superior in some ways. And, and frankly, like for people who don't want to be entrepreneurs, it's actually like much better that they go into other careers and and some people get into entrepreneurs uh, entrepreneurship for the wrong reason like they're absolutely just as human as everyone else and and for people who are like no I don't want to do anything entrepreneurial at all we should be like more power to you go and just but put as much energy into not being an entrepreneur as, as people who are entrepreneurs put into their thing because the worst thing is if someone who's kind of wallowing away at 40 hours a week doing the bare minimum miserable hates their life you know, and it's just as bad if you're an entrepreneur and you're miserable and you're working 80 hours, but at least you're kind of like, it's your thing that you're doing. Like, so there is, there is a difference there. And I do think we do need to have more entrepreneurs in Canada, like just so that we can take control over, over Canada. Like we have so much foreign influence through large multinational 
global companies that where the brand and all the creative is decided in some small office in Silicon Valley where it's like they aren't representative of our country at all. And so I'd love to see a world where we have more, you know, companies like you guys that understand Canadians, understand Canada, like you're from Sudbury, I'm from Saskatoon, where the people who work for the company are represented of the clients that they're going to have. And I don't think I see enough of that today. I agree with you. I think that, I don't know about you, but I always thought it was funny when I would hear, oh, people are going to school and they're taking entrepreneurship or it's like, how can you go to school for that? Just seemed so organic and seemed like this is just what I'm going to do. And partially was because I felt like I was a slacker. Like I, I couldn't, I didn't feel right in a really structured environment. But as I, you know, as I get older and learn a lot, there's so many different types of entrepreneurs and, and ways of doing it. And I think, yeah, if we maybe did teach that, I had not been an entrepreneur last. I don't know if you have, like, there's lots of different ways to become whatever you want to become. And I think also just to like to circle back to what I was talking about with failure and like talking about failure, maybe like did work contribute to failure of my marriage or whatever like that. Going in with your eyes wide open and the risks involved from a emotional or like mental, whatever, all those angles to going that direction, because I certainly didn't know anything when I went, when I started. It was it was just, uh, you know, it was a rush. It was a rush. It was a rush. And yes, failures are important and everything, but I think it probably could have mitigated some along the way if I had if I had known better. So I guess it's up to us to be teaching and mentoring, right? Which I do love and I do do. And I, I certainly have with my partners. My partners at public office are younger than me. They have never been entrepreneurs. They're definitely specialists in what they do and teaching them and growing up with them. And this company has been one of the highlights of my career. There was one last piece I wanted to ask you, Kirsten, is about good foot delivery. So this is an industry that I'm fairly familiar with, but you're taking a, obviously a different approach here. Tell our listeners a bit about Goodfoot and and kind of why you got it started. Uh, so Goodfoot was founded in 2010 by me and my brother. My brother is um, neurodiverse. On the spectrum, maybe hasn't been really ever properly diagnosed, but fairly high functional. So he's a couple of years younger than me, and I was really having trouble finding employment. He was still living at home, and that's when I was mentioning earlier, my sister and I got him down to Toronto. And, you know, after many unsuccessful job applications and interviews, I just said, hey, let's just start a company. I've got several friends who have companies. We all use couriers. That's, I looked at my career bill. I was like, I'm spending this much money. This is crazy. I said, let's start a company. You can be the courier. And let's make it a nonprofit and let's see who else can join. And he said, okay. And so uh, we came up with Good Foot because really it was just he, he can't ride a bike. So it would be delivering packages on foot on the TTC. You know, it was a great idea. And we, we got pressed and we had parents phoning us and coming to see us. And then we had like four more couriers. And I had like all of my colleagues starting to use the service. I called Virgin. They donated phones. And so they were able to have a smartphone for the first time, navigate the city on their own. So just bringing in different types of partners. And it, it just, you know, when things are right and the flow just happens and it's just so easy, it was, it was easy. The people that worked there were so great at their job because they love coming to work every day. And the confidence grew. Families felt 
relieved. And so a lot of our couriers who were living at home were able to then move out and begin to live on their own because we created like this holistic. Well, they must feel trusted, you know, and I don't think that's, that's probably a feeling they don't get all the time. Oh, yeah. And then also the clients, you know, were like Virgin and Universal and like all these cool companies that they get to go in. And they feel like they're part of it. Yeah. They were known by name because our client, our customers were our partners because they knew that they were, you got like 10 years ago, people were afraid that people who are on the spectrum or neurodiverse were going to like lose their package or something bad was going to happen. Like there's been tremendous stigma busting in the past 10 years around that whole topic about how capable and how dedicated and how dependable that community is. So there was there was a lot of stigma to break through. Not that I did all myself, but I'm just saying like it's come a long way. So yeah, so they've been around now for, oh, I guess 12 years and there's over 50 careers and it's set up, I sort of set it up as an unusual scenario because I wanted it to be run like a business so that they felt like they weren't working for a charity and had to make their numbers and all that stuff. But I want us to be able to collect charitable donations. So really, it's a nonprofit social enterprise charity. And I don't know how many there are out there, but the government let us do it. So that's the way it works. And the ideal would be to really franchise it to other cities, which we've talked to about many, many times. But you do need sort of a founder like that as someone who's going to be the one that sort of shakes shakes the trees and up and going and I've had conversations with people over the past decade that would be the dream and like there's no reason why this can't exist like London and New York City. It does seem like you could transplant it to other cities. Where can people learn more about public office and Goodfoot? Uh, so Goodfoot is at goodfootdelivery.com okay. and public office is at wearepublicoffice.com. Well, I'm really appreciative, extremely grateful, Kirsten, for you taking the time to, to chat with me today. And I think, I mean, you just have an exceptional career and, and the impact that you've had on so many businesses through your own entrepreneurship and the amount of courage that you've shown just kind of building multiple different types of businesses, sometimes simultaneously. I think it's a, it's we need more of that in Canada. And I, and I really hope people who listen to this look at what you've done and say, hey, you know what? Like, why can't I do it? You know, she's done it. You know, why Why can't I? And I just think it's great. And, and I hope people can, can really learn from, from your own path. Um, so thank you very much for coming. Thanks, Jeff. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to Behind the Brand. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. If you're interested in learning more about Neo Financial, visit us at neofinancial.com. Behind the Brand is a production of Neo Financial and Media Lab YYC, hosted by Jeff Adamson. Strategy, research, and production by Keegan Sharp, Alana Tefelchuk, and Kyle Marshall.